0: Please turn in your Bibles to 1 Kings chapter 14. I will say this from time to time, especially when we get to areas of Scripture that it's just, it seems like it's just a bummer. I don't know how how else to put it, but. You know, we get to these periods in, you know, 1st and 2nd Kings and 1st and 2nd Chronicles where you just see the result of a nation that has turned its back on God. And there's a little bit of a roller coaster from time to time, especially with the southern kingdom of Judah and at times having great hope and a good king that brings them back into a relationship with God. But the the northern kingdom of Israel, for the most part, and again, you know, there's the southern kingdom of Judah, the northern kingdom of Israel, which is comprised of ten tribes, it has a wicked king throughout its history. And uh, it's just bad news. And all you see is just this constant bad news. And and that's what we're getting to right now. So I'm going to try to get through it as quickly as possible so we can get to something more encouraging in God's word. But... It's, it's useful. It is useful to understand Israel's history. So let's open in a word of prayer. Lord, we're grateful for your word, for all the lessons of your word. And again, too, your word says of itself that it's alive and that it's powerful, that it's sharper than any two-edged sword, that it separates between soul and spirit, joint and marrow, and is the discerner of the thoughts and the intents of the heart. And even in these areas where your people have departed from you and are worshiping other gods, Lord, there are lessons to be learned. There is, uh, again, too, just the consequences of their sin uh, that would serve as a warning to us as well. Please speak to us this evening, Lord, through your word. And it's in your mighty name, Lord Jesus, that we pray. The other thing that makes things a little complicated is that these names somewhat run together and there's a lot of similarities and somewhat confusion keeping them track keeping track of them so uh, again hopefully you can kind of tag along or follow along last week at the end of chapter 13 we saw that Rehoboam I'm sorry Jeroboam because of his idolatry is is, is, is there's judgment that's pronounced against him. Initially, the prophet um, Ahijah had anointed him to be king, had encouraged him to follow the Lord, told him that God would make a covenant with him. But Jeroboam, because of his fear that the nation was going to go and align itself with the southern tribe of Judah, because that's where they would go to worship at least three times out of the year to celebrate the feast, he decides he sets up these two places of of idol worship for the nation to go. And it's only a matter of time before God judges that. And, And so what we begin to see in chapter 14 is the judgment of God. And again to this downward spiral that... The northern, the ten northern tribes of Israel will take. And it says, at this time, Abijah, and again, like I said, confusing because some of the names are the same. Abijah is the son of Jeroboam, fell sick. And Jeroboam said to his wife, Arise, I pray thee, and disguise thyself that thou be not known to be the wife of Jeroboam, and get thee to Shiloh. Behold, there is a the prophet so jeroboam's son's name is abijah he's sick he tells his wife to disguise herself and go find a the prophet which told me that i should be king over this people and take with thee ten loaves and cracknels and a cruise of honey and go to him and he shall tell thee what shall become of the child There's something seriously wrong with a person's relationship with God. First of all, if you're not the one that's going. And why doesn't Jeroboam go to these false prophets? And I think deep down in his heart, he knows that they have absolutely no power. And again, the the problem, you know, the inconsistencies that people have when they worship something other than God, the true and living God. That's one of the things at times that I have seen when I've had opportunity to share the gospel. I like to find out what a person believes and just begin to ask them. And as they, they tell me, and I remember one time, and this was years ago on a trip to Israel, we were in Tiberias. After we had gone, spent the day, you know, going to some different sites and touring, in the evening we would go out and we would just go down in some of the areas where people would hang out or go to restaurants and just congregate, there was nightlife, and just engage them and we would bring guitars and we would worship and they'd, you know, they're usually attracted to that, and they they wanted to come and see why. You know there are Americans there that are worshiping and and and, and even engage us, and so it was kind of a, a, a great opportunity to share. But I remember too, even just uh, typically when I would share the gospel with somebody, I, especially if they were Jewish, I would share from the Old Testament because they again too that's to them their scripture, the scripture to them. But I remember one particular couple, and 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 again. Pointing out the the prophecies in the scripture of the coming of the Messiah and pointing out how Jesus fulfilled these prophecies. But a a lot of times I just like to hear what they have to say. And so I remember asking him questions. And and the thing I wanted to, uh, to go to just really simply is how did we get here? How did mankind end up on the planet? And there are people that will say, you know, we have evolved over millions and billions and whatever years, and it's no longer called the theory of evolution. It's just accepted somehow as if it's fact. And there's problems with that. I'm not here to address all those things right now. But as I was talking to this young couple, I just asked him because I told them this is what the Word of God says. This is what your scripture says that God created the heavens and the earth and that God created everything that, that is in the universe on six days and the seventh day he rested. And I asked him, I said, what do you believe? And again, too, he he acknowledged that there were problems with evolution, but he said that that wasn't his belief as to how mankind ended up on the planet. I said, well, how did mankind end up on the planet? And he said he believed that an alien race from another You know, planet came and, in a sense, seeded our planet with human beings and that we grew from that, that we're basically a race of aliens from another planet. And so I said to him, and I, I, I framed it this way, I said, you know, I believe in something in which that there is evidence you know the bible speaks of a worldwide flood and you can go to just about any place in the world and there's evidence of that there's a sediment layer that is there and there are fossils you know there's again to evidence that something catastrophic happened because even in the the, the north pole there's a guy back in the 50s wrote a book called worlds and collisions by Emanuel vilikovsky the guy is a, a jewish scientist not even a believer but he just raised some of these questions as to why you could find a, a woolly mammoth, you know, that is in the—I don't know if it was Antarctica or Arctic, you know, the north of the South Pole—but it had tropical vegetation, plant life like you would find in, you know, Hawaii or somewhere in the Caribbean. How something like that was frozen and have that still intact in its digestive tract, and wondering. You know, he postulated that at one point the whole world was more of a garden paradise and evenly, you know, know, even temperatures. So again, too, I I say, getting back to this couple, I said, you know, there's evidence for the word of God. And I said, and that's what I believe. But I said, basically, you're telling me you believe in something because I asked him, I said, well, what evidence do you have? Well, I don't have any. I said, well, why do you believe that? He said, I just do. So you really, there's no other possibility. No, I'm I'm convinced of it. And it's funny to me then as you begin to ask people's questions about their beliefs, how you see the inconsistencies, how they break down. And that's why I like to listen to what people have to say. And then I like to either point out some of those inconsistencies and point out to them that there is a belief system that it's completely consistent and that if you follow it, and believe that you will have a peace, but you will know the creator of all things. Jeroboam's inconsistency is he's set up these places of worship, but when it it comes down to it and that his son Abijah is sick, he is wanting to see whether or not his son will live or die. And he knows that he can go to the prophet of God. He knows, again, too. this is very similar to the types of relationship that that God has, has or the prophets would have with those that they anointed to be king. Remember, um, the prophet Samuel anoints Saul to be the first king of Israel and initially they had a good relationship, but then the problem is that Saul became disobedient to God's commands. And God then has Samuel appoint or anoint David to be the next king and, and David has that special relationship with the prophet. And you see that throughout his life. The thing that we don't see is we don't see in the life of Solomon ever having that kind of a relationship with a prophet, with someone that, again, too, could advise him as to what God is wanting him to do. And for me, there's a red flag, too, with that, because maybe Solomon, because of God's answer to his prayer that he would be granted wisdom, maybe Solomon was always trusting in his own wisdom. That's just kind of a side note. But Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, decides he needs to know whether or not his son is going to die. But he also knows that he's not in a right relationship with God. He knows that he is responsible for the nation or the northern nation, the ten tribes of Israel, uh, in leading them into idolatry, establishing these places both in Bethel and in, in Dan, in the tribe of Dan. But he still sends to find out and probably even have the prophet Ahijah intercede for him. So he sends his wife and the other thing he tells his wife to do is disguise yourself so that you're not known to be my wife. You know, I get to, what what could you possibly be thinking? If he really is a prophet and you're wanting to say, is my son going to live or die? He's also going to know that who your wife is and he's going to know uh, you know, if he's going to know whether or not your son's going to live or die, he's going to know exactly who you are, but he, he's just not thinking along those lines of how great God is. And the other thing that he does is he sends his wife with a gift of ten loaves, basically, of bread and some honey and a few, you know, nuts and grains and things like that. I was reading a commentary on on this particular verse and it pointed out how in other places of the scripture, whenever a king was asking advice of a prophet, he would typically send a much greater gift than that. And it got me thinking, well, why would he send such a, a common gift? And he ten loaves, I don't know if it's deliberate because it represents maybe the ten tribes in which he is governing. But again, I think it's part of the ruse or the desire to somehow deceive the prophet Ahijah into thinking that his wife is just someone that's common as opposed to the queen married to the king of the northern tribes of Israel. So let's see what happens. In verse 4 it says that Jeroboam's wife did so and arose and went to Shiloh and came to the house of Ahijah, and actually I should mention, and probably, you know, I've mentioned this before, but before God establishes Jerusalem as the place in which he had put his name and allows then Solomon to build the temple, the tabernacle when Israel first came into the land of promise, some probably 480 years earlier, uh, that was the place in which the tabernacle, the tent of meeting was established in Shiloh, until then Shiloh was judged by God and wiped out, wiped out by the Philistines but still at this point you know it still exists and so Jeroboam's wife is going to see Ahijah in Shiloh and verse 4 says that she came to the house of Ahijah but Ahijah could not see for his eyes were old King James says were set by reason of his age in the NIV it says that Ahijah could not see. His sight was gone because of his age. He gets to the point where he's blind. I mean, she didn't even have to disguise herself. But she's there, and it says in verse 5 that the Lord had said to Ahijah, Behold, the wife of Jeroboam comes to ask a thing of thee for her son, for he is sick. Thus and thus shalt thou say unto her, for it shall be that when she comes in, that she shall feign or deceive herself to be another woman. So even before this is happening, the Lord has already prepared the prophet Ah Ahijah for the whole thing and has told him exactly how to respond. In verse 6 it says, And it was so when Ahijah heard the sound of her feet as she came in at the door that he said, Come in, thou wife of Jeroboam. (laughs) I like that. Why fatest thou thyself to be to be another? Why are you pretending to be someone else? For I am sent to thee with heavy tidings. He's basically saying, I've got bad news for you. See, even though a can't see, he can see. God has given him the ability to discern a even though it makes me think of the passage, the outward man is failing, the inward man is re- being renewed day by day. There never comes a point in a person's life where they lose their usefulness to the kingdom of God. And Ahijah has a message, but it's one of condemnation. It's one of judgment. Not a popular message, but it's something that that is coming to take place. Now, um, one thing... And I'm trying to think of it, it doesn't give us the, the reference point yet. I was going to say how much time has gone by before uh, the judgment of God is taking place. But uh, the one, one thing I will tell you is, is that, uh, well, let's just read on. So it says, this is the message then in verse 7. And from verses 7 all the way through verse 16, we're going to see all of this. It's a great detailed message that the Lord has given him concerning the judgment of Jeroboam and the northern tribes of Israel. Thus says the Lord God of Israel, verse 7, For as much as I exalted you from among the people and made you prince over my people Israel, And rent or divided or tore the kingdom away from the house of David and gave it to you. And yet you have not been as my servant David who kept my commandments. And who followed me with all his heart to do that only which was right in mine eyes. But you have done evil above all that were before you. For you have gone and made you other gods and molten images to provoke me to anger and has cast me behind your back. It's sad when you consider the potential that was wasted because God was actually wanting to bless Jeroboam. God was actually wanting to make the same kind of covenant that he had made with David. God was wanting to use Jeroboam and yet Jeroboam because of his fear ends up forsaking that relationship with God. He was afraid that he would lose that power authority that he had. He was afraid that the people would go down to Jerusalem to worship. He didn't trust the Lord. And I think it's always the greatest mistake and we miss out on the blessings of God when we don't trust the work that God is wanting to do regardless of the circumstance and it's not just a, a matter of not trusting god i mean he the pendulum swings all the way to the other side i mean it's not a I don't trust you Lord I don't believe that you can really do this I don't believe you can establish me as king I don't believe that you can establish my lineage as well and I don't believe that I can maintain control or authority of these people unless somehow I do something to control the situation so I'm gonna put up these false gods and have them worship there so that they don't venture down into Judah I mean those are his fears Paul, writing to Timothy, says that God hasn't given us a spirit of fear, but of power and of love and of a sound mind. There will be things that will try to pull you away from trusting in God. I mean, it's part of Satan's strategy. It's part of the weakness of our flesh. And yet we have to come back to what does the Word of God say? What is is my heart? I mean, you know, the thing is God is working in our hearts, too. There is conviction there. I mean, just uh, the conviction is evidenced, I believe, for Jeroboam that he can't even go to talk to the prophet. He has to send his wife and has to disguise her. So now after this period of time has gone by, and I believe too, you know, it doesn't tell us how much time has gone by. It, It just tells us that there has been time that has elapsed. But you know that God waits patiently until he actually pronounces this judgment. And I believe that every time that God waits, he is wanting us to respond to that conviction. He's wanting us to recognize, just like Jesus says in the book of Revelation, he's knocking at the door. He wants to know whether or not we're going to obey. And he reminds Jeroboam of all that he had going for him. But now in verse 9 he says you've done evil above all that were before you. And as I mentioned last week from this point on Jeroboam the son of Nebat is going to kind of be the standard for evil or for wickedness for the kings of Israel. You know he'll be compared to the the, the future kings you know the, 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 the footnote of their lives will be and he did evil like Jeroboam the son of Nebat. You know, or he did evil, not as much as Jeroboam, the son of Nebat. I mean, he's kind of the standard or the reference point for doing evil, departing from God and making not only himself depart, but making God's people depart and worshiping these false gods. And then God says that, you made these other gods and molten images and you've provoked me to anger and you've cast me behind your back. I mean, the first commandment, not to make any other gods nor to worship them, that our God is a jealous God. And and rightly so, I mean, God has created everything. God has initiated and shown his mercy and his grace to us. And when we willfully reject those things or that relationship or God's love, it breaks his heart. And it brings him to those places of judgment. And again, to what a sad note when he basically says, you've cast me behind you. You know, you've just thrown me to the side. Verse 10, therefore, consequences now. Therefore, behold, I will bring evil upon the house of Jeroboam. See, Jeroboam's sin doesn't just affect him, but it's going to affect his lineage. God was wanting to bless his lineage, but now God is going to judge his lineage for the idolatry. And he says, I will bring evil upon the house of Jeroboam and cut off from Jeroboam, Old King James says, he that pees against the wall. The other translations just simply say every male. You know, it's very descriptive. (laughs) It's mentioned in a couple places in the scripture. But it says, him that is shut up and left Israel and will take away the remnant of the house of Jeroboam as a man takes away, Old King James says, as an, a man takes away dung till, he, till it be all gone. I think in the, in the newer translation, the New King James, it says, Refuge, refuse or trash. Basically what God says is, I'm going to remove all of your lineage the same way you would take out the trash. Verse 11, him that dies of Jeroboam in the city, the dogs will eat, shall the dogs eat, and him that dies in the field shall the fowls of the air eat, the Lord hath spoken it. See, it was a a, a great reproach to die and to not be buried. I mean, it demonstrated not only the judgment of God, but it was just like, it was unthinkable that you wouldn't bury the dead. But God is saying the judgment of Jeroboam is going to be so severe that his descendants, anybody that dies in the city, they're not even going to have a proper burial. The dogs are going to eat their remains. And anybody that dies of Jeroboam that happens to be in the fields or out in, outside the cities, basically the, the birds of the air are going to, you know, eat the carcasses, that there's going to, not going to be anyone that will bury them. Verse 12, and now the prophet is speaking to Jeroboam's wife, to arise thou therefore, get thee to your own house, and when your feet shall enter the city, the child shall die. And all Israel shall mourn for him and bury him, for he only of Jeroboam shall come to the grave, because in him there is found some good thing toward the Lord God of Israel in the house of Jeroboam. So she's told to go home, but the problem is the minute that she enters into the city that her son would die. Now one thing is, we read this and it sounds almost as if he might be a small child initially, but as you read this and you understand in verse 13, he says that the nation of Israel will mourn for him and at this point in time, Jeroboam, probably his son is, might have been in his, his early 20s. So, so again, too, even though he's being referenced a child, he's probably a young man, or maybe you know, in his teens, his mid, mid to late teens. And what the prophet says is going to happen is when she enters into the city, the son will die. But the, 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 he is going to be the exception. He is going to be the one that is not eaten by the dogs or eaten by the, by, the, by the vultures. He's actually going to be buried and he's going to be buried in a proper way, but also too that the, the nation of Israel would mourn for him because there is some good that is in him. Verse 14, Moreover the Lord shall raise him up a king over Israel who shall cut off the house of Jeroboam that day. But what even now? Basically, he's saying that's happening right now. God is already at work to replace Jeroboam. And that's the thing. Because of his sin, and we've seen this previously, we saw this with Saul. Saul actually has a couple of opportunities to be obedient to God. Saul wasn't guilty of the things that Jeroboam was guilty of. But the bottom line is is God will replace you if you're disobedient to him. And God is already at work. That time of God's mercy and waiting for the repentance has passed. Verse 15, for the Lord will smite Israel as a reed is shaken in the water. And he shall root up Israel out of of this good land which he gave to their fathers and shall scatter them beyond the river because they have made their groves. There are high places in which they would provoke the Lord to anger. And he shall give Israel up because of the sins of Jeroboam who did sin and made Israel to sin. God had actually warned this in the law as well. You know, there would be an opportunity for them to repent. But the bottom line is, is if they didn't, then they would be carried away captive. And that's what God is saying in verse 15 and in verse 16. Verse 17, it says that Jeroboam's wife arose and departed and came to Tirzah. When she came to the threshold of the door, the child died, and they buried him, and all Israel mourned for him according to the word of the Lord, which he spake by the hand of his servant Ahijah the prophet. And the rest of the acts of Jeroboam, I mean, his blip in Israel's his history is short. You know, we just saw him, I think it was the previous chapter or two but it says the rest of the acts of Jeroboam how he warred and how he reigned behold they are written in the book of the chronicles of the kings of Israel and the days of Jeroboam reigned were 22 years and he slept with his fathers and Nadab his son reigned in his stead verse 21 and Rehoboam and this is what we're going to see as we're going through the rest of first kings Typically, it's going to go back and forth and talk about the kings in a successive way, but typically, right now, we just got done talking about the northern tribe of Israel and the king Jeroboam, who was their first king, but now Nadab, his son, is going to be the next king. And now, beginning in verse 21, we're back to Rehoboam, the son of Solomon. And if you remember a few chapters back, the kingdom was divided because Rehoboam was willing to listen to the young counselors instead of the old wise counselors that had stood in the presence of his father Solomon and were trying to tell him how to, you know, be established as a king. So now we're back to him and we're going to see what happens with him. And again, it's very brief. You know, the rest of the chapter just deals with Rehoboam. And like I said, there's confusion because it kind of sounds like Jeroboam. But now we're talking about Rehoboam. And it says in verse 21, And Rehoboam the son of Solomon reigned in Judah. Rehoboam was forty and one years old when he began to reign. And he reigned seventeen years in Jerusalem, the city which the Lord did choose out of all the tribes of Israel, to put his name there. And his mother's name was Naamah an Ammonitess. This is interesting to me. Because back in, I believe it's Deuteronomy chapter 17, where it talks about um, the requirements of a king and the different expectations that God placed upon a king once he was established as a king, that he wasn't to multiply to himself wives, he wasn't to multiply to himself horses or silver, he was to write out a copy of the law. But the other thing that's interesting is that it included in those requirements was he had to be Jewish. Now, you could make the argument say, so, well, yeah, of course he's Jewish because he is the son of Solomon. But in the culture, what made you Jewish was whether or not your mom was Jewish. And here, his mom was an Ammonitess. She was from, again, to uh, the, the, the descendants of the children of Ammon. And again, we, we saw this. The problem was that Solomon had all these different foreign pagan wives and as a result he appoints one of his sons who is from one of these foreign wives to be the king and I think I think, according to the law he would be disqualified because he wasn't technically Jewish just kind of a, a note there for a side note and again too he's, he's already got a couple of strikes against him so it says um, in verse 22 that Judah and now it's speaking of the southern kingdom of Judah that is made up of the tribe of Judah and the tribe of Benjamin. But it says that Judah did evil in the sight of the Lord and they provoked him to jealousy with their sins which they had committed above all that their fathers had done. For they also, and note it says also, in the same way that, you know, Jeroboam is introducing idolatry, Rehoboam is allowing... He's not acting upon the idolatry that is taking place in Judah. It says they also built them high places and images and groves on every high hill and under every green tree. And there were also sodomites in the land and they did according to all the abominations of the nations which the Lord cast out before the children of Israel. Old King James says sodomites. In the NIV it says male prostitutes, I believe. Um, or shrine prostitutes and again to whether it's sodomites or whether again to it's those that are just guilty of sexual sin in a in the basest of ways you know God looks at a nation and he judges them according to different things and sexual purity and fornication and sexual sin is something that, that just demonstrates you know, where a nation is at spiritually and all these different things it's not just that but again to their verse 23 that they're building these places of worship that people would worship at and this is the tribe of Judah I mean how quickly after having a king like David who loved the Lord and then you have Solomon and now you've got Rehoboam and it's like it doesn't take much each generation has a responsibility to pass its faith in god to the generation that's coming up and and typically when god has done a great work it's only a matter of two to three generations before that work is forgotten and in israel's history you we've already seen this as well especially in the book of judges is this roller coaster ride of a relationship with god and then they would be close to god and then they would begin to kind of let their guard down or they'd begin to worship these other gods or they'd be involved in areas of sin and unrepentant and then God would judge them severely and many times they would be carried away captive and then as a result of God's judgment or again to them being subjugated by the other nations, a lot of times by the Philistines, then they would repent and then after the repentance God would hear them, they would turn back to God, then God would deliver them and then they would be walking with God and they'd be on fire for the lord and then all of a sudden they would begin to slip again and they just up and down and up and down and in some ways there are christians like that as well in their relationships with god and their relationship with god and rehoboam after just a couple of generations have passed is allowing he's the king i mean he Again, too, he's the son of Solomon. He could have stopped these things. It doesn't say that he went to the extent that Jeroboam went in introducing these things, but he does allow these things, and the nation quickly goes astray, and God is going to judge them as well. And the judgment comes after five years of Rehoboam's reign. In verse 25, it came to pass in the fifth year of King Rehoboam that Shishak, the king of Egypt, came up against Jerusalem. And he took away the treasures of the house of the Lord and the treasures of the king's house. He even took away all, all and he took away all the shields of gold which Solomon had made. We, see, see, we saw this previously as we were studying the life of Solomon in First Kings. We saw how prosperous he was as a king. And the abundance that God had blessed him with. And specifically the note that was made regarding these shields of gold. And again, too, I don't know that they were probably more for show than actual combat. But again, too, in Solomon's reign, it just talks about, you know, uh, the, the abundance and the wealth and the prosperity. And it talks about, again, too, that, you know, silver was nothing it was like stones there you know just rocks i mean i mean and now all of this stuff this wealth is being taken away by shishak the king of egypt after five years and again to me it demonstrates that during that five-year period of time rehoboam could have turned his heart towards god rehoboam as the king could have been a strong leader like david was not necessarily solomon But Rehoboam could have done the right things, but he doesn't. And as a result, the judgment of God has has begun to come in the form of the king of Egypt taking away the wealth and the prosperity that they had, taking away these shields of gold. Verse 27 says that that King Rehoboam made in their stead or in their place brazen shields or, or, or shields of brass and one of the things that you see in the scriptures whenever brass is used, it's always symbolizing judgment, God's judgment. So the fact that they went from having gold to having brass shields demonstrates the judgment of God that has taken place. And it says that he committed them into the hand of the chief guard which kept the door of the king's house. And it was so that when the king went into the house of the Lord that the guard bare them and brought them back into the guard chamber. The life of Rehoboam comes to an end here at the close of the chapter. Verse 29 says, Now the rest of the acts of Rehoboam and all that he did are they not written in the book of the chronicles of the king's of Judah, and there was war between Rehoboam and Jeroboam all their days. And Rehoboam slept with his fathers and was buried in his, uh, with his fathers in the city of David. And his mother's name was Naamah an Ammonitess. And, and Abijam, his son, reigned in his stead. And that's what we're going to pick up next week: is the reign. of of the northern kingdom by Nadab and of the southern kingdom by Abijam. So, Israel's history. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for this time and for the history, Lord. And for the lessons and the reminder, Lord, of the blessings that you want to bless us with, but also, too, that as a loving father, you're not afraid to chasten or to discipline. Lord, at times, too, maybe we recognize things that are going on in our lives that you're using to get our attention. And I pray, God, that we wouldn't harden our heart, but that we would know, Lord, that you're at work, even in the chastening and the discipline, Lord. Thank you for these lessons. Thank you, Lord, that, again, too, we can see how mighty and how great you are in power. And even as the psalmist says that, Lord, that you're the one that promotes, that you... Raise up one and that you put down another. Lord, we've even seen that happening. We see that happening in the world that we're living today. We don't understand at times what's going on with who's in power, who's in control or charge. But Lord, we do know that you're still sovereign and that you're at work. And that we need to just obey you and follow you, Lord, and keep our eyes fixed upon you and not upon any man, any ruler, any leader, any institution. But Lord, that we would be faithful to you as your people. We would wait for your return. Lord, bless your people. And it's in your mighty name, Lord Jesus, that we pray. Amen.